You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, America. Welcome to a veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. I'm your host, Pete Mecca. Folks, buckle your seatbelts because we have a heck of a program today. My guest is professor and lawyer Bob Turner. He has holds two doctorate degrees in law from the University of Virginia Law School and taught at the University of Virginia from 1981 to 2020. He also has other postgraduate studies from the University of Virginia's Woodrow Wilson Department of Government and Foreign, Foreign Affairs, grade point average 4.0. At Sanford University, Bob achieved graduate studies in history, grade point average 4.0, and political science, grade point average 4.0. He received a BA degree in government from Indiana University in 1968. During his undergraduate studies, Bob was active in more than 100 teach-in debates and panels between 1965 and going into the Army in 1968. He was commissioned through Army ROTC, but turned down a law school uh, deferment to volunteer for duty in Vietnam. Due to his expertise on Vietnamese communism, he was assigned to work for Lieutenant General William Yarborough, who had headed special forces under President John Kennedy. Lieutenant General Yarborough went on to head Army Intelligence. From U.S. Embassy in Saigon, Bob worked as a special projects officer in the North Vietnamese Viet Cong Affairs Division Strategic Psychological Warfare Area. Later, as a national security advisor to Senator Bob Griffith, he visited Vietnam often and left Vietnam for the last time during the final evacuation of Saigon in April of 1975. He was there helping with the orphan airlift out of Vietnam and was also trying to get into Cambodia to rescue the orphans there. He visited 42 of the 44 provinces in South Vietnam, as well as areas in Laos and Cambodia. After leaving the Army, Bob became a fellow at Sanford's Hoover University of War, Revolution, and Peace, where he penned his first book, Vietnamese Communism. Thus far, he has authored or co-authored 17 books and published op-eds in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Washington Post, and many more. And he's working on six new books now. He has testified before more than a dozen different congressional committees. He also served as special assistant to the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy as counsel to the President's Intelligence Oversight Board in the Reagan White House. In 2010, the largest Vietnamese human rights organization on the East Coast awarded Bob its first Person of the Year award. Folks, that covers about 10% of his accomplishments. If I were to relate his entire resume, we'd be here for about two weeks. Uh, I suggest you go to my website, veteransarticle.com. Let me repeat that, veteransarticle.com. Click on radio program. Click on his photo. 
and then you can read his entire resume. That, too, <laughs> should take you about two weeks. It's amazing. I am absolutely honored to have him as my guest. Bob, welcome to the program, sir. Thank you, Pete. It is indeed my honor. I'm just so impressed with the work that you were doing. Well, thank you, sir. Now, we're going to uh, go ahead and hit the nail right on the head starting out. How did you first develop an interest in the Vietnam War? Well, I was a student in Paris, France, when the August 2, 1964 Gulf of Tonkin attack occurred. And when I returned to college in the United States, I encountered anti-war protesters. I had grown up the son of an Army Air Corps and U.S. Air Force flight surgeon. And having lived around the world and traveled around the country, I had a great admiration for America and for our military. And so I stepped up to take on the critics. Uh, to do that, I shifted my major from economics to government, uh, got in the honors program, and did a great deal of independent research on various aspects of Vietnam and the war. Uh, that culminated with a 448-page honors thesis about the war. Wow. All right, now, during the war, you took part in a large number of these teach-ins, debates, and panels and other programs about the war. You debated some of the top leaders of Students for a Democratic Society and other war opponents. Did you find their arguments persuasive at all? Pete, you know, it's funny. I, I had the advantage of having done years of serious research on the conflict uh, as, a, as an undergraduate, and uh, I debated people that, for the most part, knew almost nothing about Vietnam or the conflict, and much of what they, quote, knew was, in fact, not true. Uh, and uh, so I actually emerged from the debates feeling, feeling more confident in my position. All right, very good. Uh, they said the U.S. helped France return to Indochina immediately after World War II. Is that correct? You know, it's one of the many myths about the war. Uh, Hanoi put out its propaganda lines. They were just sucked up and regurgitated by the far left. Uh, the reality is, and it really is an irony, one of the greatest sources of information about the Vietnam War were the Pentagon Papers. Uh, if Nixon and his top people had read them, they probably would not have tried to suppress them. I wrote a monograph in 1972 for the American Friends of Vietnam that was entitled Myths of the Vietnam War, the Pentagon Papers Reconsidered, and it used, it's, it quoted from the Pentagon Papers to shoot down virtually every major argument being used by the anti-war people. That was on the internet uh, prior to my retirement from UVA Law School, and I am going to scan it again and find a way to get it on the internet, but uh, I, uh, I quoted, uh, for example, the, the Pentagon Papers included original documents that showed FDR, President Roosevelt, during World War II, had uh, taken a very strong view that after the war, France should not be allowed to return to Indochina. It had exploited the country for a century and the people were worse off than they had been when the French first came in. Uh, the Brits were not happy with this because they were a colonial power and didn't like the idea of undermining colonialism, but FDR was determined 
And the Pentagon Papers note that after World War II, the United States banned all U.S. commercial ships from carrying troops or weapons from France to Indochina. Uh, so, uh, you know, you know, we finally, uh, starting about 1950, uh, after, of course, China fell to the communists in, 19, in October of 1949, and uh, by early 1950, it was clear that Ho Chi Minh was, in fact, an agent of the Communist International. Uh, and uh, at that point, we decided that stopping the advance of communism was more important than opposing French colonialism, and we started funding much of the French effort, and uh, we actually considered at one point using nuclear weapons to help France avoid defeat in Indochina, although that was... Uh, uh, Ike put a condition that the British would have to join us in the operation, and they refused to do it. So uh, we allowed uh, the French ultimately to lose. Wow. You know, perhaps uh, one of the biggest disputes was over whether there was aggression from the North or was it just a civil war in South Vietnam? Where do you stand on that? Well, this is one of the easiest myths to refute, and I uh, did that regularly during the war. Uh, I used to travel, because I was an undergraduate, often taking on professors. At one point, I took on three professors and a minister in Manhattan, Kansas, and uh, uh, so I would carry two large, what we used to call catalog cases. They were like double-sized briefcases uh, filled with documents and books and so forth, and uh, uh, one of the things I often took with me was a copy of Volume 1 of the Proceedings of the Third Congress of the late Laodong Party, the Vietnamese Communist Party, or what they call the Workers' Party. Uh, and uh, uh, it uh, documented at the Third Party Congress in May of 1960, uh, the party had passed a resolution calling for, quote, our people in the South, end quote, to set up a uh, national liberation movement headed by a Marxist-Leninist party. Uh, Le Zuan, the first secretary of the Ladong uh, party, uh, gave a speech, again, making the same point, and, uh, and, they, and they passed the resolution. So this was, was very clear. But more importantly, uh, after the war... Hanoi published its official history of the war. Uh, a friend of mine translated it in, into English. It was over 500 pages, and the English title was published by the University Press of Kansas under the title Aggression from the North. And you can find it on, uh, on Amazon, and if you want to understand whether there was aggression from the North, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, uh, the the title was Victory in Vietnam, sorry. Aggression from the North was the title of a 1965 State Department white paper that was rejected by academics all over the country. Oh, this is a lie. The National Liberation Front is independent and so forth. But that was just absurd. And in the book, uh, uh, Victory in Vietnam, uh, the party documented in great detail the May 1959 decision to open the Ho Chi Minh Trail and start pouring troops, weapons, supplies down through Laos and Cambodia into South Vietnam to overthrow its government by force. 
that was uh, every bit as illegal as when uh, North Korea, uh, which had, you know, Korea had also been divided uh, temporarily into two parts uh, after World War II. And when North Korea invaded South Korea trying to unify it, the U.N. Security Council denounced it as aggression uh, and asked the United States to lead a multinational force to drive the North Koreans out of South Korea. Uh, so, you know, the uh, uh, I used to teach both international law and constitutional law, and on, on both, both areas, uh, the Vietnam War was absolutely legal. Yes, there were some individual war crimes, as there were in virtually every war that ever existed, but the, the basic goal of protecting South Vietnam from communist aggression was the same reason uh, you know, that we've gotten involved in most of our wars. Okay, very good. Bob, I do hate to interrupt you. We're going to have to go to our first break. This is so interesting. Folks, uh, we'll be right back after first breaks. Please stand by. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with one of the leading authorities on the Vietnam War, Professor Bob Turner. Bob, we were talking about laws, uh, was it lawful or unlawful? War critics argue uh, that the United States violated the 1954 Geneva Agreements, and thus our intervention in Vietnam was unlawful. Is that true? That was one of the most popular arguments I heard, and just about, the irony is almost every debate I had I got the same litany of arguments, and this was a core one. And the answer is, and again, the Pentagon Papers document this thoroughly, as do several books on the Geneva Conventions. There were two documents that came. The, the Geneva Conference started out talking about Korea, and it did not produce success there. And in May, on May seventh uh, or eighth, it turned to discussing Indochina. Uh, thanks to brilliant political advice from the Chinese communists, uh, <laughs> Vohen Jap held off the final attack at Dien Bin Phu uh, so that Dien Bin Phu fell the day before the Geneva Conference turned to Indochina on May 7, 1954. Uh, that brought down the government of uh, the, the Linnell government in Paris, 
uh, and brought to power a socialist uh, 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 who promised to end the war within 30 days or quit his job. Uh, anyway, at Geneva, there were two documents. There was a ceasefire agreement negotiated totally in secret by the French and the Viet Minh military. Didn't bind South Vietnam. The French had already given the government of what it called the state of Vietnam complete control over its foreign relations, so France could not commit it legally under international law. Uh, the other document was the final declaration of the conference on July 21st, 1954, and because South Vietnam and the United States refused to sign that, it was an unsigned document that was in- endorsed by a number of participants at the conference. But South Vietnam and the United States both took the very clear position. First of all, they opposed the vision of Vietnam, which the South Vietnamese said would inevitably lead to a permanent division. But they said that if there is partition, reunification should occur as a result of free and fair elections supervised by the United Nations to make sure they are conducted freely. The U.S. insisted upon that same point, and Walter Beale Smith, General Smith, announced on the, the, 30, the 21st of July that the U.S. Would, uh, was not committed to anything other than we would not use force to undermine the accords, but that we continued to believe that divided countries should be united based upon U.N.-supervised elections. Uh, and uh, uh, that was a very wise decision because Hanoi did have some sham elections in which Ho Chi Minh never uh, received less than 99.98% of the vote, and his top lieutenants never received less than 98%. They had a majority of the population. Molotov said at Geneva, he was the Head of the, he was a Soviet foreign minister and the head of their delegation. He said that uh, UN supervision would interfere with the uh, the rights of the Vietnamese people to determine their own future. And so the, their game was: we're going to hold an election in our zone. We're going to tell you how it came out, and then you know you can add twenty percent to a unanimous vote in the South, and you're still going to lose because we got more people. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, the, the, the New York Times wrote two uh, editorials in the months leading up to the so-called planned elections uh, saying that it would be monstrous to force the people of free South Vietnam to uh, abide by elections in a communist country uh, where there's, there's no evidence in history that a free election has ever occurred in a communist country. So it's an absolutely bogus argument. I understand. Uh, thank you for that. Now, one of the biggest arguments was that we misunderstood our enemy, that Ho Chi Minh, uh, the leader of North Vietnam for most of the time, was just, in fact, a nationalist and not a communist. And had we allowed him to maintain control of Vietnam, he would serve as a buffer to Chinese communist expansion. What do you say about that? Well, Pete, I was at a teach-in at Queens College in New York in the mid-60s, mid, uh, uh, and after my program, my part was over, somebody gave me a little piece of rice paper, a little, pa- little like a, a, a leaflet, that said, if you want to know more about the American war, against, war of aggression against the people of Vietnam, write Citizens Committee for Peace and so forth, Bok So-and-So Hanoi. 
And I did that. And I said, I want to know more about the American War of Aggression. And every three to six months, I would get a care package, usually two to four inches thick, with pamphlets and books in English that Hanoi had published. And they included all four volumes of Ho Chi Minh's selected works and various biographies of Ho and so forth. And one of the ironies is Hanoi's own biographies very accurately traced Ho Chi Minh's history. Ho, Ho was born on May 19, 1890. He left Vietnam in 1911, uh, ultimately wound up in Paris. And in December of, of, of uh, 1920, Ho was a co-founder of the French Communist Party. He actually spoke out in favor of the Socialist Party joining the uh, the uh, Third International, or the Comintern, the Communist International. Uh, and shortly thereafter, he traveled to Moscow, where he was trained uh, and became an agent of the Communist International, the Comintern. He traveled all over the world on a Soviet passport as a Comintern agent. Uh, so uh, this, this is just absolutely absurd to say he was a nationalist. Indeed, uh, 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 in the late 1940s, uh, the, the, Ho, Ho did not set foot in Vietnam from 1911 until 1941, when the Comintern set him back in to set up the uh, the Viet Minh Front, which was pretending to be just an anti-French group, but in fact was totally controlled by the Communist Party. And uh, uh, Viet Minh Radio in the 19, late 1940s denounced Tito as a, as a uh, puppet of the United States imperialist. Uh, in, 19, in January 1950, Ho established the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, what we call North Vietnam, uh, and he called out to all countries in the world to recognize his new government. And one of the first countries to do that was Tito's Yugoslavia, and Hanoi rejected the offer of recognition. Uh, now, the scholars on the other side used to respond, well, Turner's right on that, but that's because Ho was desperate for Soviet assistance for weapons so he could free his country, and Stalin and, uh, and Tito were feuding. And the problem with that is that when, when, when uh, Stalin died and Khrushchev came to power and actually went to Belgrade and hugged Tito, the North Vietnamese continued to denounce him. And indeed, at the 30, Third Party Congress uh, in uh, May of 1960, uh, Lê Zuan, in speaking to the group, he was the Secretary General, uh, uh, or the first Secretary of the Lao Dung Party, uh, d declared that Tito was revisionism was the greatest threat to the solidarity of the international communist movement. Uh, they, you know, they they always considered Yugoslavia to be a third world country, not a socialist country, and it's just absolutely absurd. Now, the other thing is uh, when. Uh, 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 the, the North Vietnamese declared that uh, Comrade Mao had most correctly carried out the teachings of Lenin on armed struggle. And even after we abandoned Vietnam and allowed the communists to take power, they were promoting, promoting revolution around the world, among other things, by sending thousands of M-16s and other weapons we had left behind uh, through Cuba and Nicaragua 
to the uh, uh, FMLN guerrillas in El Salvador. Uh, our NSA had intercepted what was going on. Shafiq Handel was the Secretary General of the uh, 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 Salvadorian Communist Party, and uh, he he went to Moscow and asked for Western weapons. He said, I don't want AKs because if our guerrillas carry AK-47s, they will say we are communists. Of course, they were communists, but they didn't want the West to know that. And so the uh, the, the Russians said, we don't have Western weapons, but our friends in Vietnam do, and we will... You know, we will fund your trip to Vietnam, and if they agree to you know, to provide weapons, we will transport them from Vietnam to Cuba, and then our, our friends in Cuba will get them into Nicaragua and up to uh, El Salvador, which is exactly what happened. At one point, uh, the Hondurans intercepted a uh, 18-wheeler that had an 18-inch false top to it that was filled with a uh, hundred and some odd M16s. RPGs, just all your know, rockets, all sorts of uh, of weapons, and uh, uh, so you know this idea that the uh, that that, that uh, uh, Ho Chi Minh was going to be some sort of a Tito uh, is just absurd. Okay, great explanation. Well, let me add one a... thing. I mentioned sure. the, the, the debates. One of my favorite debates was against Carl Oglesby who had been the national president of SDS. We were at uh, Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana, and uh, in his opening remarks, he said the Vietnamese didn't care about the U.S.-Soviet rivalry. All they wanted was peace and freedom and human rights and so forth. And so when I got up, for my, I, I decided to use my opening statement uh, to just re- rebut everything he had said and Every point he made, I shot down. And on this one, I uh, 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 I had a, a copy. I, I said, it's interesting that Mr. Oglesby doesn't think the Vietnamese communists care about the U.S.-Soviet rivalry. But I submit it's even more interesting what the Vietnamese communists say about this. And I happen to have here an English translation of the May 1966 issue of Hot Tap, which translates studies and is a theoretical journal of the uh, Laodong Party, and it says, and I quote, in the sphere of international affairs, we belong to the socialist camp headed by the great Soviet Union and aligned against the imperialist camp headed by the United States. Uh, When I finished my presentation, uh, and each document when I read it, I slid it down the table to Oglesby so he could look at it. Uh, when I finished my opening remark and it was time for him to make a rebuttal, he walked up to the microphone and said, I have nothing further to say, and sat down. Uh, and that was not unusual for uh, a debate. Uh, uh, that that, and, that uh, is outstanding. Outstanding. All right, uh, sorry, Bob. we got to go to our second break. Uh, we'll sure. be back in just a couple minutes. Uh, just stand by, everybody. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. 
If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with Professor Bob Turner, uh, expert on Vietnam and the Vietnam War. Bob, critics like to say the Vietnam War was unnecessary, unlawful, and unwinnable. Any of those statements accurate? They're all entirely false. Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, we had the war won on the ground by the time I left in 1971. Uh, I was in, I, I traveled throughout the Delta in 1968, and by 1971, the situation was entirely different. The Cambodian incursion broke the back of the NLF in South Vietnam, and of course, the, the Tet Offensive of 68. Pretty much, and the May offensive that same year, uh, pretty much destroyed the Viet Cong. By 1970, almost all of the fighting in the South was being done by North Vietnamese regulars, by, by the People's Army of Vietnam or Pavin. Uh, so uh, uh, the uh, uh, you know, it, it, as far as it being unnecessary, uh, I would submit that. Uh, we could have lost the Cold War had we not fought in Vietnam. Uh, Lin Pao, the uh, vice chairman of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party, wrote a, uh, 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 gave a speech, but it was published as a pamphlet that I, I picked up a copy of in one of the communist bookstores, I think in Philadelphia or San Francisco. And uh, uh, it, it was called Long Live the Victory of People's Wars. And he noted that the Vietnam was a test case of whether the United States could deal with people's war, what the Soviets call wars of national liberation, and that once the U.S. was defeated in Vietnam, that would show people around the third world that they, too, could do what the Vietnamese did, and there would be a dozen or more Vietnams. The reality, and that would have almost certainly happened, and had we walked away from Vietnam, Potential allies would have not wanted our assistance because we weren't reliable, and so they would have tried to cut the best deal they could with the communists, which they would lose. So, uh, uh, you know, in in 1964, Thailand and Indonesia, which which was the third most populous country in the world at the time, were basket cases ripe for revolution. They had major communist insurgencies. The Chinese were supporting revolution around the world throughout Southeast Asia, as far away as Mozambique and Africa, providing uh, trainers, money, weapons, uh, and so forth. 
and uh, referring to their internationalist duty to support revolutions. By delaying the end of the war, China went through the great proletarian cultural revolution. It turned inward. Lin Bao was purged. Uh, and by the time we finally abandoned Vietnam, the Chinese were no longer exporting revolution. And Thailand and Indonesia had become much stronger countries capable of, of withstanding communist assault. So uh, 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 Che Guevara, uh, Fidel Castro's top military advisor, announced in one speech that the future of the revolution in the Western Hemisphere would be decided on the battlefields of Vietnam. So had we walked away from Vietnam early, uh, I think we would have found ourselves faced with the choice of either losing one revolution after another or using nuclear weapons. Uh, and I think we might well have lost the Cold War or else gotten ourselves in one hell of a nuclear war uh, as a result. So it, it is absolutely, uh, uh, you know, all of those arguments are absolutely absurd. Wow. All right. Now, was our side actually defeated by the enemy on the battlefield? Not at all. Uh, my friend Harry Summers uh, wrote a book called On Strategy that was quite good. And at the beginning, he has a quote from an American colonel and a North Vietnamese colonel. He actually went up to Hanoi after the war as part of a delegation, and he was that American colonel. And the American colonel uh, said, you know, you never defeated us on the battlefield. And the North Vietnamese colonel responded, that may be so, but it's also irrelevant. And both men were right. Uh, we, uh, we did not lose a single major battle in the war. The, the communists had the initiative, they had the, uh, uh, you know, they decided when to fight because they could hide their AK-47s in rice paddies, you know, and, uh, and decide when to come out and fight. They, they looked like farmers until they decided to become soldiers, so they had the initiative on when to attack. You know, we, we tried to take it away. We, you know, we, we conducted a, a bunch of operations. Stupid. We didn't. Abrams really understood how to fight a guerrilla warfare. Westmoreland was one of the prettiest generals I ever saw, but he was clueless about the war he was trying to fight. Uh, he, he and my old boss, Bill Yarbrough, had been West Point classmates and just didn't see things eye to eye. If we had sent uh, Yarbrough to Vietnam, the war would have been over probably within months. Uh, it's, it's certainly a lot quicker with a lot fewer casualties than turned out to be the case. Uh, but uh, the uh, uh, you know the, you know we got ambushed left and right. They inflicted, they killed you know fifty eight thousand. Well, actually about uh, forty six thousand uh, American soldiers. The rest of them died from you know non combat accidents and other things. Uh, but I'm not. I'm not putting down the enemy, the, either the VC or the Pavin. Uh, they fought courageously. Uh, they, uh, you know, they, they, they were you know, had tremendous initiative. They, they were brilliant in some of their, their 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 tactics. But they could not defeat the U.S. military. Every time they stood and tried to fight. Uh, we brought in air power, naval gunfire, and so forth, and we just kicked their butts. They, you know, they, they just didn't have anything to match it. Now, by the end of the war, by the early 70s, they had brought down some 130 uh, uh, Soviet artillery pieces that, 
uh, you know, were incredibly uh, good, and uh, and they brought in tanks and so forth. Uh, had uh, had Nixon been free to respond to the spring offensive in 1972, what Americans call the Easter offensive, but most Vietnamese don't celebrate Easter, so they call it the spring offensive, we could have just kicked their butts. Uh, no question about it. Those tanks, you cannot hide a tank in a rice paddy. Uh, and, you know, our, our attack aircraft would have just blown them to hell. Uh, but we weren't allowed to do that. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I sat on the Senate floor and listened to Ted Kennedy talk about, and this was in 74, talk about South Vietnam didn't need any more aid. They had, I've forgotten his figure, but it was X billion dollars worth of equipment. And that was true. They had a lot of tanks and a lot of airplanes and a lot of helicopters and so forth. And they had no, virtually no fuel, no spare parts, and no ammo. And one of the great ironies in life is that a tank without fuel and ammo is less valuable than a rock, which you can at least throw at the enemy. Nobody can pick <laughs> up a tank and throw it at, at the enemy. And so, uh, you know, the South Vietnamese were, uh, were helpless because Hanoi and Beijing were pouring aid into the communist side, and we had essentially cut off aid. Uh, and by uh, after after uh, August of '73, in, in May of '73, Congress passed a law prohibiting the use of Treasury funds after August 15th of that year for combat operations by U.S. forces in the air, on the ground, or off the shores of North Vietnam, South Vietnam, Laos, or Cambodia. At that point, Pham Van Dong, the North Vietnamese premier, who had been on the ropes and understood it, announced the Americans won't come back now even if we offered them candy. And so they sent virtually their entire army. They kept the 325th Division back to protect Hanoi. But other than that, they sent their entire army into mostly South Vietnam, some into Laos and Cambodia. Uh, uh, to overthrow the government, and the South Vietnamese could not withstand the assault because we had turned off the supplies they needed to win the war. Now, one final point on this. Uh, the people said no to NZM, the president of South Vietnam, uh, from uh, 55 until his assassination in November of 63, that he was an American puppet. The Pentagon Papers show time and again how he stood up to Americans, American diplomats were used to third world leaders basically bowing down and say, uh, you know, please tell us what to do. ZM said, I welcome your advice, but I am the president and I will make decisions. And he thought he was going to face a guerrilla war and needed an anti-guerrilla force, the kind of thing my old boss Bill Yarbrough recommended. And the United States said, look, we are funding this. If you want money, you will build a U.S. type, you know, large military with a, with a very large tail, and uh, uh, ZM had no choice if he, if he wanted to, because the, you know, the communists were pouring in aid to Hanoi, and so he went with that, and thus became totally dependent upon logistics, uh, you know, and so, you know, we, uh, uh, but time and again, he resisted our advice until we basically blackmailed him into giving in. And on most of the issues, he was right, uh, history shows. And uh, uh, we, we didn't talk about him, but I was driving back to Saigon in 1971 with a man named Bui Kong Chong. 
he was, I believe, the most important defector in the entire war. He was a Viet Cong, the equivalent of a full colonel, the head of propaganda, culture, education, and training for what they call Ben Trey Province. We called it Ken War Province, but the city of Ben Trey was, was, was its capital. And uh, I asked him, what did you think of ZM? And he told me, no, ZM, note in ZM, the, uh, or DM, uh, you know, spelt D-I-E-M. Uh, and uh, he said, when we heard he had been killed, we thought it must be a trick because the Americans could not be so foolish as to allow anything to happen to ZM. He said, because he would not accept the party's leadership, we used our propaganda to denounce ZM as a puppet and, you know, corrupt and so forth. But in fact, he was a great patriot in the same class as Ho Chi Minh, and uh, uh, he was extremely effective against us. Uh, and uh, I talked to a lot of South Vietnamese who had worked with him, some, some in his cabinet, and uh, one in particular, Dr. Tran Van Do, had been the, the South Vietnamese representative at Geneva, and he had had a falling out with him. But I had dinner with him one evening, and he told me, oh, he was a great patriot and a man of tremendous talent and, you know, totally uncorrupt. Uh, so, uh, you know, the American media really did a job on a man who, by, by all accounts, was a great Vietnamese patriot and exactly the kind of guy they needed to get through that war. Wow, that, that's interesting. All right, I, I tell you what, that that, that answers about the, the next two questions. But right. when we come when we come back, Bob, uh, earlier this year, you wrote a chapter in a book published by the uh, Vietnam Veterans for Factual History, in which you blame Congress in a major way for our defeat in Vietnam, which I might agree with. But when we come back from this uh, last break, I want you to elaborate on that. Okay. I'll do it. All right. Folks, we'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with uh, Professor Bob Turner. Bob, <clears throat> tell us about Congress and our defeat in Vietnam. You know, I was in Vietnam five times between 1968 and the final evacuation. I traveled all over the country as well as into Laos and Cambodia. Uh, tried to get into North Vietnam in 1974, but uh, that didn't work. I was in Vientiane, Laos. and uh, uh, But I learned more about why we lost the Vietnam War in my five years as National Security Advisor to Senator Bob Griffin, a member of the Foreign Relations Committee. 
And I'll tell you what was going on. The polls were showing uh, a lot of American dissatisfaction with the way LBJ was fighting the war. There were a lot of super hawks who voted for McCarthy in December of, uh, of 68 in the uh, uh, primary. Indeed, one of the ironies is some very sophisticated polling that wasn't published for years afterwards showed that a majority of McCarthy's voters went on to support George Wallace and Curtis LeMay, the Superhawk candidates for president in the Democratic uh, convention, or in the Democratic uh, 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 primaries. Uh, but anyway, uh, the polls were showing that most Americans did not want to abandon South Vietnam. Uh, Nixon's mail was overwhelmingly in support of the war. People who didn't like the war wrote to Congress, and our mail was 20 to 1 against the war. We got, I, I often had to meet with delegations from Michigan who wanted to come down and complain about the war. And I heard, listened to them politely and told the senator what they had said, but they were absolutely full of crap in terms of their understanding of the facts. I didn't argue with them. That wasn't my job. But Congress was getting all this pressure. Members of Congress would go home and give speeches and be accused of being baby, you know, you're napalming babies and so forth. And they wanted to get this issue off the table. They didn't understand the facts. Uh, and so they, uh, uh, in, uh, in May of uh, 73, they passed a law making it illegal to spend U.S. Treasury funds on combat operations in Indochina. And, you know, as a result, that told Hanoi, you can have South Vietnam. Both Moscow and Beijing had dramatically cut back on their aid to Hanoi. As soon as Congress said uh, the Americans are thrown in the towel and snatched defeat from the jaws of victory, Moscow and Beijing uh, dramatically stepped up their aid to Hanoi, allowing Hanoi to take over South Vietnam. So, uh, 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 you know, I'm... I, I, we, we could spend a lot of time talking about bad things Congress did. Uh, General P.X. Kelly, the commandant of the Marine Corps, was one of my best friends prior to his death a couple of years ago. And uh, we wrote some articles together, uh, and uh, one of them noted that the partisan congressional debate on our troops in Beirut, Lebanon, uh, had incentivized the enemy to kill as many as they could. Uh, and indeed, the real irony there is uh, Osama bin Laden in 1998 uh, conducted an interview or sub subjected himself to an interview by an American journalist, and he said that the American pullout in Vietnam, uh, Beirut, and Somalia showed the Americans cannot accept ca or unwilling to accept casualties, and that was certainly a core reason their decision to blow up for the 911 attacks. So the, the congressional betrayal of South Vietnam was very much a cause of the 911 attacks. And uh, congressional intervention and intelligence, that's another speech, uh, uh, made it impossible. We would, have, we would have identified those terrorists. There's no question in my mind that NSA... Uh, if they had been allowed, if they had, we had not had a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, uh, we would have, uh, uh, you know, rolled up that uh, that cell uh, that that committed those terrorist attacks. Uh, the, the FBI 
and identified Zacharias Massawi as a potential terrorist and even suggested that he might be planning on flying an airplane into a building. I think we're really on the ball on that. But Congress, in enacting FISA, prohibited any investigation until you could show the target was an agent of a foreign power. And we went to the Brits and the French and others and said, do you have any information on this guy, Massawi? And the French came back and said, yes, we we have a record that uh, the mother of another Muslim in, uh, in, in Paris went to one of our police departments and complained that Massawi had talked her son into volunteering to, flight, to fight with the Chetnian guerrillas where he was killed. But the Chetnian guerrillas were not on our list of transnational terrorist groups at the time, so that didn't help. The Brits totally ignored our request for more than two weeks, and we kept going back, this is really urgent, do you have anything on Massawi? The day after the 911 attacks, they gave us a file showing he had trained at a uh, an al-Qaeda training facility in Afghanistan. And uh, this was revealed in a footnote in a massive Inspector General report, Department of Justice, on what went wrong in the Masawi case. And the, in their footnote, they said, we don't know why the British didn't give us the information earlier. Well, I do know. Uh, the former general counsel of, uh, of uh, one of the British intelligence agencies had told me earlier, not in this context, but that America's inability to keep secrets made it very difficult for the Brits to share intelligence with us. They didn't want to be blind for their own security. And it is absolutely clear to me that in this case, they had a deep cover agent uh, in Al-Qaeda who was giving them great information, and they decided the Americans want information on Massawi, but if we give it to him and it becomes public, our source will be murdered along with his family and friends, and we will be blind. We can't share the information. And I think they did exactly the right thing in terms of their interest. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, the, the consequences of Vietnam are far greater than most Americans realize. And the, the harm done by Congress has just been incredible uh, out of their ignorance. And, and Joe Biden, by the way, has been one of the worst. Uh, I, uh, I, I worked with Biden. I sat in meetings with Biden probably three hours a week on average for his first five years in the Senate, and he was an incredible lightweight, uh, very personable, very nice guy. Uh, uh, but uh, we, uh, uh, he, he just screwed up almost everything, uh, including uh, when, when P.X. Kelly begged the Foreign Relations Committee to stop the partisan debate on Beirut, saying you're endangering the lives of my Marines, on the 29th of September, 1983, uh, uh, Biden got up on the Senate floor when they were considering allowing the president to extend the deployment in Beirut. And he said, I've heard, as I'm sure some of you have, that merely by having this debate, we're endangering our troops. Well, we'll never know until we have one of these debates. And two weeks later, a terrorist bomb killed 241 sleeping Marines. And Biden got his answer. Uh, And uh, in uh, 1991, I was testifying before the Judiciary Committee that he chaired on whether the elder President Bush should be impeached uh, because he had not sought a declaration of war 
before carrying out the U.N. mandate, the U.N. Security Council asked us to lead a group of countries to eject the Iraqis from Kuwait. And uh, 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 at that point, uh, after a long hearing, Biden said he had to go catch his train to go back to Delaware. And I said, "Uh, Senator, I know it's unusual, but you allow me to ask you a question. And he said, sure. And I said, is it your view that to this point, President Bush has violated the law in his handling of this issue. And he says, well, unless you're talking about the War Powers Resolution, which is only of academic interest, the answer is no. Uh, I've often wondered if his supporters knew that he had dismissed the War Powers Resolution, but he learned firsthand how harmful it is. I testified before a special subcommittee of the Foreign Relations Committee that he chaired back in, I think it was 88, uh, where he heard a lot of experts say this thing is unconstitutional and is undermining our security left and right. And uh, uh, But anyway, go ahead with your next question. I know we're running out of time. Oh, that, that's, that's great, great information you're giving us. Uh, do you think it was a mistake for the United States to go to war in Vietnam? Absolutely not. Again, this, this goes back to Lin Pao and his... Uh, his argument that was embraced by, you know, the Cubans and others, that Vietnam was a test case. And had we walked away from, you know, after, I don't know, most of your your, uh, listeners probably don't know this, but when Eisenhower became president, he leaked, or he, he told the Indians that he was moving nuclear weapons to Okinawa, which at that point was under cylinder our control, uh, for use against China if the war continued in Korea. He knew, the, sorry, uh, use against North Korea. He knew the Indians would share the information with the Chinese who would tell the North Koreans. And that's how we got a piece of, we got a, a, you know, an end to the Korean War. Well, Ike announced the New Look Doctrine, which basically said if there's another Korean War, we're not going to match American boys against Chinese boys. We are going to respond decisively at a time and place of our own choosing. Ergo, Mr. Castro, look around Moscow, see what you like, contemplate the half-life of U-235, and ask if you want a nuclear weapon over another Korean War. And that was the message. And uh, Khrushchev was totally deterred, and that was a major part of the Sino-Soviet rift. Mao said, well, the Americans do have nuclear weapons, and they appear to be very fierce, but in fact they are paper tigers because you can't use nuclear weapons against gorillas because the gorillas live and work and fight among the people, and for every gorilla you kill with a nuclear weapon, you're going to kill hundreds of innocent civilians, and the world community would not tolerate that. And so American nukes are in fact useless, And we're going to take over country by country through people's warfare. Again, what the Soviets call wars of national liberation. And Vietnam became the test case of whether our counterinsurgency tactics could defeat that. And had we walked away, again, I think we would have quickly seen ourselves fighting a dozen uh, Vietnam-type wars. Uh, The the cost of, of responding to a guerrilla war is at least 10 times the cost of fighting one. Because fighting one, you decide when and where you want to attack. Uh, and you, you may only have 50 soldiers, but you can attack one outpost, 
outpost. So the defenders have to have, you know, uh, a lot more people uh, all over the country. And uh, it's, it's just, you know, it's an extremely expensive thing. I, when I worked as special assistant to the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, uh, we started what was called the Reagan Doctrine, which included providing support to guerrillas in places like Cambodia, uh, where the communists had seized power illegally, and it was raising the cost to them tremendously. That also, the Contra program was part of that. Nicaragua was clearly engaged in, in major armed aggression throughout South, throughout uh, uh, Central America. They were giving uh, weapons and, and advice and uh, uh, money and so forth to guerrillas in El Salvador and Costa Rica and Honduras, Guatemala. And uh, we started uh, uh, have to wrap it up. anti-government, anti-Sandinista guerrillas, yeah. and that really raised the cost to them. And uh, uh, we, were, we were using this same, same strategy uh, I, I played a very small legal advisor. Okay. Go ahead. Hey, Bob, I do, I do do hate to cut you off. We are out of time. Thank you so much for this. Very interesting. I'm going to have to have you back. You're very It was great. great. It was really a great pleasure, Pete. Communism, and I know you have some comments about what's going on in this country today. So, folks, uh, join us next week. We'll be back with another guest. Bob, thank you so much, sir. Great, great energy. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.